Welcome to the Micro Digressions Podcast. This is Spencer Case. So, before I did that first episode with Ryan Jenkins, the one on the dark side of technology, I actually had a previous test episode back in July of 2019 with Justin Califf on Is Everything Becoming Political? And I had initially decided against releasing it because the audio wasn't very good. I didn't have a wind guard for my microphone, and it was just my very first time even trying this out. So I had initially shelved this. I gave this a second listen, and I've decided that it's actually quite an interesting conversation, and with some heroic editing efforts, I've got it to where it's at least tolerable in terms of the audio quality. So apologies for the, uh, the imperfections here. But I think you'll agree it's an interesting conversation, and so I'm going to go ahead and release it. Today's subject is, is everything becoming political? I'm here with Justin Califf. Justin Califf is an assistant teaching professor and director of teaching innovation at Rutgers University. How do you describe your research interests, Justin? It's a good question. People always ask, what are your research interests? I've managed to get a a really wonderful, for me, position at Rutgers in the philosophy department that is focused more on teaching. I did my PhD dissertation on questions in meta-ethics, especially concerned with, I was especially interested in in moral relativism. Recently, I've spent a lot of my time just focusing on teaching things, and I haven't been uh, publishing all that much, but I'm currently gearing up to write what I hope will be a good book on policy theory and basically policies, which I know are under a cloud in, in some circles. And this will actually come up later in our conversation. I think I'm interested in the ways in which we can get a good understanding of what's fair and good argumentation and what's bad argumentation through thinking about questions of reciprocity. I think what I mean by that will become clearer as our conversation progresses. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad I didn't know you were interested in that, but that's also a topic of interest to me. And so informal fallacies, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I'm, I know just Justin mostly from online interactions. We did meet at a undergraduate conference 10 years ago, but from our o- online interactions in the daily news comments section on Facebook, places like this, we found that we, we often seem to have a similar set of concerns. And so that's why I've invited him to talk to me here about, is everything becoming political? So I, before I say anything about it, I'm just going to I'm just going to say what my conclusions are, and maybe I can justify that position as the conversation goes on, or maybe you'll talk me out of it, or 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 something. But I want to advance the claim that society is indeed being increasingly politicized. I think this is a bad thing. In particular, it's a bad thing because politics becomes nastier and more divisive when it seems like there's no escape from politics, and we can't really relate to one another in non-political ways, or that there are no institutions that do not explicitly see themselves as devoted to political goals. So I think just as political apathy can be a problem for a society, it might also be a problem for a society if everyone is just politically fired up all the time. So that's my initial assessment of this situation. But of course, I'm, I'm open to reconsidering. I'll just ask you this. Does it seem right to you that things are getting more political, like that there's an increase in the, to the extent to which society is political. It does seem like that to me. And, and, you know, going back to something you said before, yeah, you, you and I have been posting on some of the philosophy blogs and I think in somewhere on Facebook probably as, as well. 
And I find that I do agree with you on a lot of these things. We haven't talked about a lot of other political issues. We might agree with uh, on those and we might not. But here's, I think, was the important thing. Let, let's suppose that you and I happen to completely disagree on a number of political issues. I still think that that I can learn a lot from talking with you about it and finding out why you disagree with me. I mean, you're an intelligent person. I think that you're a sincere person. And, and I'd learn a lot from hearing what you, you know, what, re- what reasons you have for believing the things that, that you believe. Here are a few different ways of thinking about the sentence, everything has become political. There are ways in which it's trivially true that everything is political. So you could say that everything is political because there are, for any relationship between two different people, there are some political differences and one person has power over the other person or in some ways, or one person knows more, or they exist within a structure where they both have power over somebody. And in that way, it's trivially true in the same way that you could say that everything is physical because we're all subject to the physical laws or everything is chemical because we're made up of, of chemicals. But then there are some other ways of saying that everything is political. So we could say that the only things that people are discussing now are, are political things and that people are separating themselves out from each other and trying to achieve a kind of purity along the lines of who believes what. And I think in that sense, it's not trivially true, but it is non-trivially true increasingly. And I think that that's a bad thing. One thing you might hear from people who disagree with us about this is to say, well, everything is already politicized and always has been, right? All of these power dynamics have been playing out this entire time, and now people are becoming conscious of that fact. So things aren't really becoming more political, right? Things have been political all along. And we're just making explicit commitments that have been on the background or something like that. Yeah. So, so I guess there are a couple of questions here. First of all, is that true? And second, if it is true, is that a a good thing? You probably know a lot more than I do about the, the research behind this, but my understanding is that things have changed considerably. Even if you look at the culture in Washington, DC, where my understanding is that it used to be that representatives from the democratic side or the Republican side would argue against each other at some part of the day, but they would still you know, see each other for bowling league or barbecues or, or whatever, or going to church or, or whatever they would do. And then later it, it's later become that, that, you know, the person across the aisle is now not even a person anymore, or certainly you shouldn't have any interactions with that person at all. So that seems, that seems to me to be changing. And I don't think that that's a particularly good thing. I think that it's really important for us to have uh, a common ground because, well, the best way to resolve issues, it seems to me is through just arguing things through. In fact, this is why I got one of the reasons I got really interested in philosophy is that I think that philosophy has the power to teach us how we can look at the fact that, you know, two people disagree. I disagree with somebody strongly about something, but I want to understand the reason why. And, you know, maybe I should change my mind. Maybe those other people should change uh, their minds and, or maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle, or, or I'll, at least I'll discover something through talking it through. But if we don't have enough interactions with each other in places where we can empathize with each other as human beings, then the ways that we see the people who disagree with us is just as caricatures or as demons. And the means that we have of resolving the important differences then are all going to be much worse. They're going to involve either violence or or threats or ostracism or other things that are going to be very unpleasant. And I, I find that a worry. So it seems like you want to connect in a way I think I'd be inclined to as well, the increasing ubiquity of politics and this other problem about civility that people have also been talking about. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, this, the civility thing is an interesting one. I'm really interested in people sitting down and having a good conversations with people who disagree with them. And I think that to do that, you know, screaming at the person is, is not going to be very helpful. Calling the person a bunch of names is not going to be as helpful as trying to understand them. However, I think there's another interesting angle to the civility thing. I come from a Jewish family and I guess to some extent it, from the uh, Jewish community. 
And apparently this fact about me and some other, some people from some other cultures, like apparently the Southern Italian culture, it's much more common for people to talk with friends and family members and sort of, a, you know, Hey, I can't believe you believe something so crazy. And, and how could you think that that's right? And, and, you know, those kinds of conversations are normal, but you don't really mean that the person is, is beneath having a conversation with them. And I think that some people now, when they talk about civility, they want an environment where nobody says anything critical about other people at all. And to do that is, is to be uncivil. And I think if you do that, it's not going to be as helpful. I, I mentioned the thing about, about the, um, cultures, because I think it's, it's kind of curious that some notions of civility are associated with particular cultures that practice a kind of reserve that might not be as philosophically friendly as, as some others. Well, you mentioned you know, how does Congress behave? How do politicians behave with regard to one another? I mean, I'm not an expert in political science, but looking at it from my eye level, it does look like there's just not much ability to compromise. You have a party has to have a, like a super majority in every branch mm -hmm. of government to get anything done most of the time. But I'm much more worried about relationships between citizens and like lower level institutions than, than at level of politicians. So when I think of things becoming more political, I think of like neutral ground disappearing, neutral ground disappearing. Yes, yes. Here's some ways that that might happen. So one is through organizations that have been previously not committed to any political positions, explicitly committing themselves to political positions, right? That sort of eliminates some politically neutral space right now. If you're a member of that organization, it seems like you're, you're then committed to whatever platform that is. So, for example, the American Philosophical Association, which we're both members of, they made numerous pronouncements about political topics. I believe they made one about the death penalty. They made one about the Iraq war. I don't know what all statements they've made, but I know that I'm a member of this organization. I sort of have to be as an aspiring philosopher at this yeah, stage you right. might and and they and they're making all these statements that it seems like they're representing me in making which i, I find somewhat objectionable so that's one kind others are, are like companies google nike other companies aligning themselves with political causes or political outlooks and that sort of changes how we have to look at at the companies we're no longer making a purely consumer decision we're making a signaling decision as well you might just not want to have been put in the place of when, like when you buy a pair of Nike shoes to think what sort of political values am I signaling? You just might wanted to buy some shoes. Right. Yeah. So I think that's another thing where the more institutions commit themselves to explicitly political aims and goals, the more the rest of us are forced to make decisions about signaling and affiliation and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you think of some other examples of that? I've got a, a few, but I'll, I'll ask you first. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think, I, you know, anecdotally, just through some of the, some of the things I've encountered or heard about, it seems to me that that really is going on. And I, and like you, I find it very, very worrying. I, I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said. I wanted to, I like your idea of, of neutral ground, and I think it's actually a really key idea. So in, in a society that is going to, especially a democratic society, which people are going to have to grapple with things like immigration and abortion and internet privacy and all kinds of other issues on which they disagree. There's going to have to be some way in which they can have a civil enough conversation with with each other so that they can hear each other's points and arguments and and we can ultimately hope that people will argue their way to the truth. Maybe not at, not everybody, but enough people that we can we can really get somewhere. And I think that really does rely on 
uh, as I said, the, the ability to have a neutral ground. So for example, suppose you and I belong to very different political parties. I don't, I'm not politically affiliated, but I don't know whether you are, but we should be able to meet at the, at the APA and have conversations as philosophers that are, that are going to allow us to come together and talk philosophically. Um, I want to talk about some other cases before the APA, because I think there are some special things with the APA, but there are some, a lot of recreational groups that, you know, just, just sporting groups or hobbyist groups. I've heard recently about some online communities working with knitting that are, have tried to cast out people who have the wrong political views and in which people are afraid to, to, to say what their views are. And I think all of those, every time, uh, one of those opportunities for people to come together and say, oh, you know, I don't have anything to do with you politically, but you and I both like uh, knitting. And, and so let's, let's, you know, we, we, we have something in common then, and then there's a much better basis for having perhaps some leader conversations, or even if they never have a conversation about politics, then person A can say, oh, I, at least I know somebody who's from my knitting circle who has these other views. And that might make, make A more inclined to consider that maybe there is something to be said for what B has to say. So I think, I think there are good opportunities there and, and they're getting destroyed every time neutral ground is, is ruined. I think also that there are more things at stake when it comes to something like the American Philosophical Association, because we aren't just a social group. We are the, I think perhaps the world's largest group of philosophers. I don't know whether we are, but a, a, a huge group of professional philosophers. And I think that it's really important for us to be neutral and to be seen as neutral because what we offer the world as philosophers is we do the job of providing the courtroom of ideas. People present ideas and arguments and we do our the best job that we can assessing them. And then people can see what the results are. Maybe we don't come to a consensus, but we at least know this argument didn't work very well after we tested it as, as best we could. And that whole process relies on there being people of different viewpoints who are arguing things through and people not feeling that they have to hold back. And so it's especially bad when something like the American Philosophical Association or maybe a social sciences group or anything with a political consequence to, to his work starts to, to go down this road because then First of all, it seems that we're not able to do the job that we're trying to do as well, because the job requires people with politically diverse views. And second, it's not clear why other people should continue to support us. And that's not just bad for philosophy. It's bad for everybody, because if people don't feel that they can turn to anybody who's trying to be neutral and work things through, then how are they going to figure out what the truth is? And I don't think any of the alternatives are all that great. Right. So we could talk about some of the things about the American Philosophical Association that suggests that it is becoming more political than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So this is a small detail. I, I was mentioning this to you yesterday. Yeah. So if you go to one of their meetings now, they require you to put on a pronoun sticker. I mean, technically you don't have to, and some people don't, but they're always, you know, when you get your, your lanyard with your name tape, they're quite adamant about, oh, you, you've got to have a pronoun sticker. You've got to have a pronoun sticker. I, for one, am suspicious that that was to solve any sort of pressing need, but just to signal their sort of support for a certain set of ideas about gender. And once they've introduced this thing, there's no longer a neutral option, right? Because if you refuse to put on your, your pronoun sticker, that's signaling something too, right? You're now signaling your opposition to their ideas about gender, right? And people might look at you and say, oh, maybe maybe you're a Jordan Peterson supporter or something like that. Whereas before they introduced this, you weren't being compelled to communicate anything about your politics just by having your name and university affiliation visible to everyone. Right. 
And that seems like a bad thing, especially because one thing that, that used to be possible, I mean, one thing that's possible if you don't have to declare your political allegiance right up front is you can actually get into a better, a good conversation with somebody and then these things can come up and that you could help to be uh, productive. So the, this, the, the thing about pronoun stickers and, and so on, I'm like so many things in philosophy, I don't really know what to think about a number of, of issues that I'm interested in. One issue I'm really interested in is this, this thing that's happening right now between on the one hand, people who are transgender or who are supporters of, I guess that term was allies of, of, of transgender people who say much more needs to be done in order to, to make the world comfortable and safe for transgender people. And then there are some other people who I guess are now called gender critical feminists who have been, I guess I don't want to say that exhausts the field because I don't think it does, but they've been saying that these very same things that are to make keeping things better for transgender people are making things more threatening for and more, more unsafe for women. And I've, I've heard some interesting things said on both sides of that issue. And I'm, I'm right now at the point where I've just wanted to hear more about it. You know, I, I think that both, I find things said on both sides plausible and I, I'd like to see the clash of ideas and how the argument ends up. And, and I think that philosophy is the place where that has to happen. You know, who, who else is really going to have the conversation in a sort of more detached intellectual way, which is something we need if we want to work out the right kind of policy. And so I don't think it's good for there to be anything in place that tilts the playing field against one side or the other of that. Because again, you know, if, if, if one side doesn't feel that they can have a fair debate there, then what else is going to happen instead of the debate? And again, I think all the alternatives are going to be worse. Well, what, what are some examples of things that put the thumb on the scale for one side of that debate in your mind? I'm not sure about this pronoun thing. Maybe I should start by asking you a question. What's your reason for thinking that you shouldn't wear the, the pronoun sticker? My reason for thinking that I shouldn't, well, I think it suggests that what sex I am is, is purely a matter of volition. I think that's suggested, right? I think it's, it suggests that you can't rely on your own judgment to determine what somebody's sex is. And I'm also suspicious of the notion that pronouns refer to something called gender and not sex, since gender in its contemporary notion is fairly recent, right? Whereas the, the pronouns that have preceded them by, I don't know, however many hundred years. Yeah. Right. And I think the normalization of that is, is going to be just used to press for further gains mm -hmm. uh, in this direction. So. I guess I'm suspicious of the intentions of it. One other thing they did at the central APA is they turned the men's and women's restrooms. They just taped gender neutral restroom over the signs. So he had to guess which one had the urinals. How does that help anyone? But it's just letting you know that this is an organization that is aligned with a certain set of ideas. And you see that too, with all of these emails they send you about various diversity initiatives seems like they can never have enough diversity initiatives, various grants and set aside that seem political in their orientation. And then all of these panels that they arrange that are, you know, very heavily lopsided into fairly narrow left identity politics type issues. Yeah, yeah. And I'd never seen them organize anything that seemed like it was challenging some of these ideas, you know, right. challenging the idea that there is this thing called gender that's independent of your sex or you know, any of the numerous things you could bring up about this. Yeah. So all of those things suggest to me that it's officially affiliated with a certain set of ideas, even though it represents philosophers who have, 
you know, variety of uh, ways of thinking about these issues. Yeah. Well, you, you and I were just talking on the way here about this idea that I, I think is a good one, that as an individual philosopher, I or you or anybody else you know, should be free to say, here's what I think and here's why I think it. But as a group, as a collective, as the American Philosophical Association, or even as just a department, we shouldn't be making partisan political claims. Now, with the pronoun sticker thing, it, the idea is that by putting on the sticker, you're being pressured as you feel to put on the sticker, you're being, you feel you're being pressured to take a side on a political issue that you don't feel is the correct one. Then that seems like it's a really bad thing. Now, you know, I'm ready to be argued into the idea that we should do these things, and I'd like to hear the argument play out. One thing I'm really interested in, and this goes back to what I was saying before about reciprocity, is what would it be like if the tables were turned? So, for example, there were many times when the universities were much more religious, and at some points, the exact sect of Christianity you belong to would determine a number of, of things about you, and people might not want to even talk to you if you belong to the wrong Christian sect or if you belong to the religion. So maybe back then they could have had you know, some people, a lot of people really felt that the growth of irreligious people or people of the wrong religion was a threat to public morality. They didn't feel safe and respected in a place with people with the wrong religion. So what if they had made you wear um, a Jesus fish or, you know, something to indicate that you were a Catholic or, or Jewish or something like that? So would people have felt as comfortable with that? Now, of course, a lot of people might say, well, that's a bad analogy that, you know, maybe so, but I'd like to hear what it is that makes this case different and why it is that in this case, we need to require everybody to do these sorts of things. If moves are being made to push people in a certain direction from which they don't feel that they're capable of having the conversations that we need to have or welcome in the organization because they have the wrong views. And if all that is happening before we can even have the conversation, I feel that, yeah, that we're not properly doing our job. Right. Well, I was going to raise a couple of more examples of this. So a couple from this university. So in 2017, the Charlottesville thing happened where a white supremacist murdered Heather Hayer at a rally. Mm-hmm. She was a counter protester protesting the Unite the Right rally. He murdered her with his vehicle. I believe he just got life in prison like last week or something like that. But in any event, there was a dean, I believe, it's a dean of the School of Arts and Sciences who sent out an email instructing all of the faculty of the humanities to bring this up in class, ask students their feelings about it and condemn racism and all of that. And look, I have no trouble condemning racism, and I certainly have no trouble condemning this act of murder. It's horrible. But I refused to do it, and I even wrote a letter to the editor for the Boulder Daily Camera explaining why I was refusing to do it. Because there are all sorts of other horrible things where we're not asked to make statements, right? Right. Even more recent than the murder of Heather Hayer, there was a jihadist car assault in Spain that murdered 13 people. And when I said something about this on Facebook, people were like, well, that's in Spain. That's far away, so it's less less relevant. But then when this white supremacist in New Zealand murdered 50 Muslims, Nobody was treating that as too distant to be a matter of concern. Right. And then there was, there was also the person who drove through New York City and drove over a bunch of bicyclists. And... Yeah, I think it was uh, mostly Argentinian citizens who were killed. It was a, another jihadist, I think. Even before that, people forget this, but earlier that year, th- there was a, an African-American man who hated white people and murdered three of them in Fresno, California, just walking down the street, shooting them. I didn't hear about that one. That's exactly the point. 
And I think this was also the same year that Steve Scalise was shot by an angry leftist, the uh, Republican congressman, was shot by a Bernie Sanders supporter. Nobody thought any of these incidents required a teachable moment where we need to sit down and talk to our students. But they thought this one needed to be talked about. And it needed to be talked about because, uh, you know, the left's moral narrative highly, highly emphasizes a certain set of evils. Things that I agree are evil, but I think, you know, we need to have a broader range of the kinds of things that we're worried about. Racism being one of many. Yeah. And so I thought, I thought that was an example of the university sort of trying to force me to take a political stance or to affirm their narrative by selecting one, one tragedy out of many to, to talk about. Yeah. I could also mention the way the administration responded to the election of Donald Trump. It was really quite something. I think I probably still have the email where it was this, oh, this, we know this is a hard time for a lot of our students. And, you know, you could just see them putting ashes in their hair and rending their garments and, and what a hard time this was. And we know many people are disappointed with the outcome. And it culminated with them actually saying that they were going to devote more services, more resources rather, to the mental health at the student health center. And I just thought, we all know that they would not have responded that way if Hillary Clinton would have been declared the victor. Yeah, right. And I think, I think it's interesting to think, would Hillary Clinton have won? And, and suppose that a school had done that. Suppose that a school had said, oh, how terrible that Hillary won. We're going to devote more resources to, to counseling for people who can't handle that and ask people to make such a statement. I'm fortunate that nobody at my school has ever asked me to make a statement about any, any of these things. So I haven't had to face that. But I certainly think that a university must preserve its neutrality in order to, to be legitimate. And I mean that very seriously. I'm not really sure what my political affiliations are. I call myself somebody on the left, but I still think that people on the left, because today there's so many more people on the left than there are on the right in, in universities. And it doesn't seem that that's going to change anytime soon. So people who are on the left often, you know, it's easy to have a hard time imagining that things are ever going to change. But if they do change, and, and you know, I don't think that the political left is going to be dominating the universities forever, then there really could be moments when people are going to have to, you know, by the rules that are being put in place now, or by the standards that are being put in place now, they're going to have to make the opposite kind of announcements in class. And they're going to be counseling services going the opposite direction. And the American Philosophical Association, which will be making the opposite kinds of pronouncements. And, and what's going to happen then? I mean, first of all, are you going to be happy with the results? And second, if you're not happy with the results, if, if that does happen, and I think it's only a matter of time when it does, it might be years, it might be decades, but the pendulum always swings. When that does happen, what are you going to be able to say? If you say, hey, you shouldn't act that way, then the people who are on the political right would say, well, back when you guys were running everything, this is what you did. And so there'll be no basis for objecting anymore. So I think that um, not, not caring about the principles, which is very easy to do when you feel that you and your political views are in power. This is ultimately not only a, a, a bad thing ethically, but it's not a very prudent thing for your side to do. Well, Justin, I think I want to anticipate a response I think you're going to hear. Okay. Which is that, look, there's just a difference between good things and bad things, right? If you're saying, what if the book were on the other foot? Yeah. Well, it would be terrible if the conservatives were in charge because then they would be enforcing the wrong kind of politics. But we're enforcing the right kind of politics, we're directing our institutions not towards backwardness, but towards progress. And so it is really different because 
there really are right answers to these things, and we have the right answers to these things. Right. And similar things were said for a very long time when, for example, the universities were all under the power of the church, right? I mean, and, and there was a very different idea of what was morally right and what was morally wrong. And people said, oh, we already have the right answers to things. It seems to me that, you know, an intellectual stalemate or uh, a, just a refusal to consider these, these uh, abstract principles is always something that favors the status quo or people who feel that they're going to be in power for an indefinite amount of time and they don't see any threats on the horizon. However, if you're the if you're in the minority, then it's always in your interest to say, hey, somebody ought to listen to me. Hey, I've got an objection here that needs to be heard. So so I don't find it too surprising that people who feel themselves to have a great deal of power and anticipate having that same power will not be all that interested in considering both sides of the issue. But what exactly are people on the other side supposed to make of this? I can definitely hear the response that for some things, the teach both sides slogan you know, with regard to creationism and evolution has been widely mocked that right. teach the controversy. So right. then, for example, there's a t-shirt that shows like the Satan burying dinosaur bones, right. you know, and it says teach the controversy. The joke being, of course, like there's no real controversy about this. Like the view that Satan planted dinosaur bones to challenge the faith of evangelical Christians is like not one of the views that they should consider. And so they're going to say, well, we don't really need to go 50-50 on this. Nazis are bad. Abolitionists are, you know, people who oppose slavery. Those people are good. It's not like we need to be in some sort of, imagine ourselves in some sort of Rawlsian original position and we don't know what views we're going to end up with. I think they're going to just insist that that's the wrong way to think about this. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting response to consider. So how old is the earth? Is there evidence for a young earth creationism? Those things have been played out, and it seems that the only way that people, you know, once people are having a fair conversation about this, the people on the young earth creationist side, for example, just keep losing. You know, somebody says, oh, the second law of thermodynamics shows that evolution is impossible. Well, there's a clear response to that, and that's been given, and right. there's no point hearing that one over again. But I don't think that we're in the same position for a lot of these social and political issues. With transgender issues, I mean, yesterday we were talking about this. We have a whole list of questions that we hadn't even seen taken up. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not like there's been this exhaustive debate and anyone who challenges the position of the transgender activists, they just keep getting mowed down with facts and logic. It's rather that it seems like there are all sorts of questions about gender identity that people aren't even really taking up. So yeah. in other cases, you can often find progressives who, who at least on one topic think, okay, well, there's at least something to be said for that, right? You don't find any evolutionary scientists who think, you know, there, well, there's something to be said for evolutionary creations. I mean, they don't even say that. Mm -hmm. You don't often find non-Nazis who think that the Nazi view deserves serious consideration, but you do often find progressives who think, well, you know, maybe immigration is trickier than we we know. I mean, or at least there's some doubt about some particular issue. So I think that maybe one way to respond to that is it was by saying, well, in one case, the debate hasn't really worked its way out yet. And in other cases, well, one view might be predominant, but you can see people who hold the other view giving some kind of acknowledgement that there's a serious case on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think it's interesting just to point out, like, consider just non-political philosophical disagreements. Right. I mean, how many 
disagreements are there in philosophy where one side thinks the other side is just mad, just crazy, yeah. right? Like what? You don't think there are tables and chairs, right? You know what? You don't think there are moral facts or what? You believe in these spooky entities, right? You know all of this stuff. So anyway, I think that's how I would be inclined to respond to my own challenge that I that I just gave. I think I think so. Yeah, and and it also you know some people are going to say, well, look, there are some people who deny certain positions, but those people are just complete jerks, and we don't want them in the. So, for example, I think Kathleen Stock has been described this way. You know, if she wants to keep raising doubts about about transgenderism, uh, or you know, doubt, doubts about up the way that gender identity works, then you know, screw her because we should take it as a starting point that such and such and so and so. So, one thing I'm interested in about a case like that is what exactly is supposed to happen to people like Kathleen Stock. So, is she supposed to just change her mind because of this, or or is she if she were drummed out of philosophy? Then what? I mean, like, you know, now I, I don't think it's really going to happen to her, but I mean, you know, let's just say more generally, if somebody who has view X, where, where view X is not, is not a permitted view anymore, is pushed out of philosophy, then that person's going to go around saying, Hey, apparently you can't say you can't argue for view X in today's universities anymore. I have some good arguments for view X that nobody wants me to be able to, to listen to. And then, you know, there's still going to be a whole bunch of people who are interested in this. It's often been argued. And I think, I think plausibly that they're going to have get a lot more support from the mere fact that they were pushed out. And then we're just, we're still going to have the same tension between the believers and the non-believers. But now the people who, who accept UX are going to be making YouTube videos or something like that. And there's going to be this whole sort of weird underground X view, uh, acceptors who will now no longer be able to argue the whole thing through in the way that we would, would like. So it's hard to, for me to see how that exactly is, is going to make things better. Well, I, I, that there are going to be people who would want to double down and to see YouTube take those videos away. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there is a sense, I think people are sort of emboldened by the pretty incredible cultural success that the gay rights movement has had over like the last 30 years or so Yeah. and think that, Hey, we can really fundamentally transform the culture. And now it's just completely, it would just be completely unacceptable like even if you thought it you wouldn't dare say two men holding hands gross yeah. if you wanted to have a position in academia you'd just be you know at the very least humiliated and shamed for it yeah whereas you know i think in the 70s people could probably get away with saying stuff like that in the 90s i even even though i was in middle school i could tell there was a very different attitude about those things back then and I think that there's this sense that this is going to be the model for how we resolve all of our political disagreements is we're going to push the other side just out of the realm of respectability. Yeah. A and they, they seem to take the one lesson from that, but not, I think there's lots of other counter evidence that typically we just ag agree to disagree, right? Yeah. So I think there's maybe this narrow focus on a particular way that a cultural issue might be resolved. It might be that one side is just decisively defeated and sort of expecting like, this is the way it's always going to be. Well, so, so let's, so let's imagine that the people who believe in UX, they get completely pushed out of the university. Now they start trying to make these YouTube videos, YouTube blocks. Them. So now maybe they, they try to get published in some newspapers and magazines of note, they get blocked from that. Now they, they're just going to have to put up their own websites on the internet 
now somehow we block them from being able to do that. You know, and everything they do, we block them. So, so now people are presumably going to start noticing this is going on. And I don't know what, you know, I think they might start wondering, wait, why is this being blocked all the time? Oh, furthermore, what happens again? And, and this is something that I think needs to be considered when the political pendulum swings. And now we've given YouTube and we've given the universities and we've given the book publishing companies and the magazines, the power and the support for all this kind of censorship. They're going to start censoring by the same principle in the exactly the opposite direction. And that doesn't seem to be uh, something that, that anybody wants who wants to get rid of view acts. To me, it just seems like a losing proposition that may seem really appealing for the short term because it gets rid of somebody who's presently making you uncomfortable, but it's creating standards that I think are unsustainable and improved. Yeah, I think this is, tends to be paired with the view that history is moving in a certain kind of direction. It's moving towards progress. So pretty soon, pretty soon, just as, you know, the racist lost and then the homophobes lost, the transphobes are next, right? Yeah. And we can just leave them behind. We don't need to worry about them making any sort of comeback because we'll, they'll just be progress. I think that might be lurking in the background. Probably. I think I, I want to ask you about, you know, as society becomes more political, mm -hmm. I don't know what the causality is here, but it seems like. It, it, there's at least a correlation with people getting more intensely political. Yeah. And I could see this going any either way, right? If you're more intensely devoted to your political beliefs, you might want to inject your politics into more and more things. Sure. Or it could be that the fact that politics is getting projected into more and more things makes you get more up in arms about it. I don't really know where the primary causation is here, but do you get a sense that those two things are sort of coming together? Uh, I think so. Yeah. I, like you, I'm not sure what the causal story is. One indication of just this general trend between the intensification and politics is that, you know, things like politically motivated firings, things like social media campaigns against celebrities who say the wrong thing. And just more and more intense ways of confronting someone like the whole notion of cancel culture is if you end up on the wrong side of something, you don't just get criticized for that, but you get, you get put in this general box of, of an undesirable person, right? Someone who's not fit for civil society or for polite company. And then there are even more intense indications of this. So here's here's three examples right so one one example is you know members of the trump administration being confronted in restaurants not being treated qua customer but they're always qua member of the trump administration and then two more intense ones are the phenomenon of milkshaking it started in the uk it's recently migrated to the us i think it's nigel farage the pro-brexit politician i think he's the leader of ukip or was at one time people showing up at rallies and throwing milkshakes on him that's migrated to the U.S. now. And a third example of this that's similar to that is, I don't know if you've heard of the Australian um, egg boy incident. No, no, I don't know that. Yeah. So shortly after the Christchurch shooting, there was this right-wing senator who said something really offensive, and it really was offensive, I would say. I mean, he, he said, this proves that we're going to have more violence if we have Muslim immigrants here. But since, you know, Muslim immigrants were the victims of that particular mass murder, it was an extremely foul thing to say, certainly at that time. Yeah, yeah. So this, this kid had himself, he had somebody take a video of him, of, of him 
smashing an egg over this guy's head as he was asking asking to clarify his remarks. And then the, the senator hit him, and then it, there was a lawsuit, and there was a GoFundMe campaign that he got a ton of money for, and he ended up donating most of it to the the victims of of the shooting. But he also apologized. The kid also said he, he thought it was wrong to, to smash an egg over this guy's head. But it's sort of hard to see that it, it being completely sincere because he did make this huge donation to to charity. It just sort of it seems to legitimate this whole mm-hmm. this whole thing. But I worry about this because it just seems like these things just obviously lend themselves to escalation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think to some extent, I, I think like you do about some of these things. I know, I know philosophically, you think that there's a, a very strong overlap. And in fact, that may be identity between ethical and epistemological as knowledge based, or to me, something that's also associated, uh, argumentative norms. I think of, of what, what it is that society is based on. How is it that society is possible? I think that in some ways, the, the social contract theory has it right that, you know, we, We'd all be worse off in the so-called state of nature where none of us agrees to any rules. But then if we just, if we say, Hey, we're all better off, we are all better off in a world where everybody agrees that we're going to follow these certain rules. We're going to follow these certain principles. And if some people break the principles or the rules or the laws or what have you, then there are going to be consequences. And so the fact that we can all trust each other to follow those rules makes everything better for everyone. And we see this in, in, you know, there are countless um, cases that you can think about that, that illustrate how this works. So then the question that arises for me is. What kinds of principles should we follow in interacting with each other and arguing with each other and trying to discover the truth? And also in, you know, some of these, these things that don't have to do with seeking the truth at all, but they have to do with reacting to a politician whose views you find disgusting or reprehensible, like, like the cases, the cases that you mentioned. So, so, so here are a couple of questions that I think are interesting. I think that need to be asked. First of all, what's the principle when a politician's views are just disgusting or reprehensible? Now. There are a lot of things that, that I and some other people would find reprehensible. Then there are some completely different things that other people might find reprehensible. So if, if it's legitimate to throw eggs and smash an egg on someone's head or throw a milkshake at the person or do these other things when the person is saying really nasty things about immigrants, what about if somebody is, is, um, pro-choice and some people find that completely reprehensible, could they also do those things? I don't know if you saw this, but it was a video on. Twitter that was making it its rounds. It first emerged last October. Yeah, this was a woman at a pro-life rally in Toronto, mm-hmm. and she was talking to this hipster-looking guy. But he asked her, "What about what about cases of rape?" And she responded that you know you couldn't commit infanticide if the baby was a product of rape. So if if abortion is the same as infanticide, the same thing goes for that. Uh, namely, it wouldn't be right in that circumstance either. And this guy obviously didn't like her answer. And he wound up and roundhouse kicked her in the head, knocked her. Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So um, apparently he was trying to kick the phone out of her hand, mm. but missed and hit her in the head. But still, he assaulted her. Yeah. You, you know, if you try to kick somebody's phone out of their hand, you're, there's a risk you're going to hurt them. But what was more disturbing is this resurfaced a couple of months ago. And it, it got... 300,000 likes or something like that. And, and over a hundred thousand retweets on Twitter. And it resurfaced where the person was, was saying, I still stand by this hero, this guy that kicked the woman. And you, you look at the comments and there were people who were 
adding special effects to make this guy. And like, this is just a dude who kicked a woman to the ground. Yeah, yeah. Unprovoked. Hostile. It was, and you know, they would like make him look like a ninja or make it look like there were flames coming off of him. And it was just, it, I just thought it was revolting. I didn't, I didn't um, know about all that, all this stuff. So, so yeah, so this is an interesting one. I mean, I mean, the, this is the abortion one is one on one, which people obviously get really upset that the pro-lifers are just horrified that somebody is going around in their view, killing babies. The pro-choice people say are horrified that someone is going around in their view, trampling on women's rights and, and all these other things. And, and again, you know, people feel very strongly about it. So it seems that we could have a rule. We could say, if you're, if you're confronted with somebody who has an extreme view on the opposite side of the abortion issue, kicking the person in the head is great and putting special effects on a thing and, and making a joke about it or idolizing the person is okay. Now, does anybody think that that's going to be a better way of handling disagreements about abortion than talking to people about, about abortion? It's hard to see how that benefits anyone. So you're probably going to say, well, <laughs> the response is going to be okay, but we on the, um, yeah, on, on yeah. the pro-choice side are in the, are in the right. And so, so you can do that whenever people have the incorrect view and you have the correct view. And so that's going to be the principle. Who's going to make this determination? Is it that each person who's in the situation where the, uh, of being able to kick someone in the head, um, has to, has to decide for him or herself, whether it's okay. That's going to be chaos. Can I ask if what you're saying here is that epistemic humility has to be built into our principles here? I, I, th I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a good way of putting it, you know. And it's, it seemed like kicking a pro-life woman in the head seemed like such an escalation from a, a couple of years ago. It was, it's okay to punch a Nazi. Right. And, and I still see people on Facebook who are absolutely enthusiastic about the idea of punching people who they presume to be Nazis. Right. Where Nazi can be defined as... And <laughs> yes, I mean, so there was this Richard Spencer... Yeah. I get it. He is clearly a white nationalist. He says he's not a Nazi, but he's one of the rare cases where I'm not willing to trust the person's denial. So he gets punched and th there was this article in the nation that was just glorifying this as a beautiful act. He was just being interviewed and some guy sucker punches him. And, and again, you can see videos of people putting this to music and, you know, splicing it with images of like Captain America and stuff like this. I'm just really alarmed about, by this because I just don't see any limiting principle here. If you're going to say that it's okay to punch somebody who has Nazi views, is it okay to kill them? Is it okay to torture them? I mean, why not? And, and where, and who, who exactly is going to determine which of the views is it kind of constitutes being, being a Nazi? Like what if somebody says, oh, I think Richard Spencer is okay. Does that person count as a, as a Nazi also? Or, That's right. Well, or, I, I, I'd like to go to see Richard Spencer talk because I'm curious about what he has to say. I don't think I agree with him. Suppose somebody says that. Right. Does, maybe that kind of person counts as a Nazi. That's right. right. I mean, like, are you just, so if you're just endorsing vigilante actions like that, then you're going to have to consider also that people are going to interpret them all kinds of different ways, especially since it doesn't mean like you're wearing a swastika on your, on your arm, uh, armband. So someone's going to have to make an interpretation of who's a Nazi. It's, I, I think this is, I think this is, this sounds really just, yeah, just, just really like bad news. Yeah. And I would also want to say at the point when we're talking about legitimizing physical violence, mm -hmm. which it seems like some people are okay with doing, that's not, that's things becoming post-political, right? Like that's things returning to the state of nature. At that point, politics has broken down. It hasn't just become uncivil. At the point where we're all beating each other up over our views, I mean, that's not. 
even a political community anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I find, I don't know that much about his views, but by the sounds of them, I, I would find them abhorrent. But you, I think of, of somebody like that and his, and his supporters, suppose that that society just says, well, people can just go punch you at will. How are they going to react to that? Are, are they likely to, I mean, presumably they'll engage in self-defense, maybe even a bit of offense in advance to, to make sure that people know that they mean business and so on. Isn't this actually what does happen? So it'll just, it just seems that the violence will escalate. I can't see how this is going to be good for the, for the long term. Yeah, uh, me neither. I do want to sort of play the devil's advocate. Yeah. Here. So I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Walzer's idea of supreme emergency in Just War Theory. Um, it's been a long time since I read Walter. So I'll, I'll give you the basic sketch. So Michael Walzer is a deontologist, and so he, he thinks that, for example, it's impermissible to target non-combatants in war, even if you're on the just side of a war. You may not kill German civilians, even if you're fighting against the Nazis. Right. There's a however, though. The however is that there is a certain threshold of severity, of direness, where if you have no other option, those rules are, I don't know if he would say suspended or you're permitted to transgress them. So, for example, it's sometimes thought that there was a period in the war early on where the British didn't really have many options for responding to Hitler militarily. And the only thing they could really do is bomb indiscriminately, where it would be ludicrous to say that that isn't targeting civilians. Okay. Right? So they went ahead and did it. And Walzer wants to say that's permissible. And in other words, things were so extreme that the general moral rules no longer hold. And I think we could imagine, and we have to imagine, that there is a civil society counterpart to supreme emergency. So typically, you should not politicize neutral ground. You shouldn't, you know, throw milkshakes on people and things like that. But maybe there is such a thing as a supreme emergency where an issue is just so important. It's just so important that the dangers of politicization are real and they maybe even count against what you're doing to some degree. But all things considered, you still ought to be a kind of hardcore activist. So here's one where I'm actually sort of tempted in that direction. So I do not evangelize my veganism. I'm not a vegangelist, I think we might think. Yeah. I, t I try to teach the issue fairly. For me, that means, you know, it's, I do think the pro-vegan arguments are going to come out more convincing because I just think that's the right side of that issue. But I haven't, like, designed my course where I maximize their exposure to the arguments I think are correct. I know people who are sort of inclined in that direction and they, they try to bring around their students to their right view. And, and the justification is like, look, we're talking about the torture and unjustified killing of tens of billions of animals a year. Right. This is a massive moral emergency, right? And so, yeah, maybe I'm compromising pure devotion to the truth, which is an important part of the university, maybe our central mission. So maybe there's a trade-off here, but maybe the trade-off is worth it because this is just such an important issue. Uh, what would you say to something like that? That's interesting. So, so, you know, generally I think that I actually had an interesting experience back when I was teaching I was still a, a PhD student and I was early in my 
exactly on in my, in my degree, but, but I was a long story. I was teaching my own course. And so I was teaching people this course on philosophy of religion. And my, my view on the whole thing is that when you consider all the arguments fairly, and then you also consider the arguments for believing on faith, you come to the conclusion that the, the arguments for the existence of God are, are just no good. And there's some good reasons for not believing in God, and it's not legitimate to believe on faith. So if, if people followed my views, they would leave my classroom with the strong belief that there is no God and that, and that it's not legitimate to believe in God. So I had that, there was another student who was in the graduate program at the time, and he was quite religious. And he gave me, I think, a very good question, which is, if I had to choose, he said, he said, Justin, if you had to choose one of the two scenarios, scenario number one, your, your students are going to learn how to argue very well. And they're going to be very good at reasoning things through, and they're going to take it over seriously, but they'll all come up completely disagreeing with you and they'll all be confused. And option two, your students will all come up agreeing with you, but they'll just be sort of slavishly trusting you because you're so charismatic and convincing or whatever, something like that. And I had to think about that for a while, but then it just dawned on me that, yeah, of course I want, I want the, the former. I want to give the students the power to reason things through. And I really think that it's important as philosophers and as, as educators in general, but especially philosophers, for us to teach new generations that the way to, to work through these kinds of moral problems and, and, to, and to, to hope that they will continue to teach to the next generation, whether they're professional philosophers or not. You know, I think, think of really old people today, when they went to university, what kind of classes were they taking? The, the kind of moral things that were important to them then had nothing to do, a lot of them had nothing to do with, with some of the things that are important now. And it, they just believed whatever their professors taught them they probably would have all kinds of crazy views about, about um, stuff today, things that we wouldn't think are all that great. And so what's going to happen even when this generation of students gets, gets a lot older, it's, it seems that it's, uh, it's a short-term solution to, to give people these, these attitudes. Now, that being said, I think that it, you know, if you have a strong view about say veganism and, and you try to get that across to your students and, and you give them readings that help show them that in fact, they're making a big mistake if they eat meat or, or drink milk or, or have eggs or what have you, that seems to me to be fine. As long as you put the facts in front of them and do it in a way that respects their ability to, to disagree with you. And let's suppose you have some people who, who don't find it convincing. Would you consider them to be bad students? I think as long as the answer to that question is no. And as long as you're, yeah, then, then I think that, I think the whole thing is all right. Ideally it would be nice if they, if they could hear both sides of the issue. Probably I'll have some students who will give the other side of the issue, but as long as they don't feel intimidated and so on, then I, I don't think that anything really bad. Can well, I want to push, I want to push okay. a little further. So okay. as far as belief in God, it sounds like our position is roughly similar, inclining toward atheism at least. And I am with you in having a strong preference of my students being able to argue well for the existence of God rather than have my specific views about the existence of God. I totally agree. But I wonder if that preference, does that preference change no matter what the content of the view is, where if I were to swap it out with not, you know, this metaphysical religious question about the existence of God, but, you know, was the Nazi Holocaust justified? Is the uh, apartheid system a just system? You know, was Chairman Mao an ideal leader? I mean, or Pol Pot or like, take your pick. Of something really, really ghastly. I have to say, if it, if the content of the views is that extremely averse to my own, I guess my preference switches, and I think like, well, in that case, I just want my students to come down on the right side of that, even if their arguments aren't amazing, rather than to be able to give all these. I guess I would have to call them tricky, sophistical arguments for positions I find really abhorrent. 
even though if I were evaluating them in a morally neutral sense, I'd have to say they were better arguments in some sense. Here's a part of a response. You mentioned something about the Nazi Holocaust. So I'm ethnically Jewish and many of my, uh, ancestors, not too distant ancestors, including some ancestors that I, that I met moved originally to Canada so that they could, uh, they could avoid the pogroms and things like that. And, and presumably we have lots of relatives who died in the, in the Nazi Holocaust. So this is something that I, I guess for, for ancestral reasons, as well as objective reasons, I, I think it was just appalling. So now I'm supposed to imagine, cause I, I, I want to pick at your thought experiment a bit. I'm supposed to imagine I've got some students, many of them have come to the conclusion that the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews was morally justified. So first of all, I have to wonder how they come to this conclusion. I mean, this is something I need to know to begin with. Is your suggestion that I can't even describe that plausibly? I'd be really curious what they are. I mean, one of the reasons why I think that the Nazi Holocaust was so terrible is that, you know, you look at it from any coherent moral system, you know, you can see maybe some of the historical reasons why it happened, but it's hard to come up with anything that would justify the Nazi Holocaust. And it's the fact that I've, I've tried to think through, you know, and it's just impossible for me to find anything that would justify the Nazi Holocaust. Now, presumably if these students are good at thinking things through, they've come up with something in, in this thought experiment, but what could it be? I mean, if, if they've actually come up with something interesting, then sure. But I mean, are we supposed to imagine that they've thought the whole thing through carefully and they've come to the conclusion that the Nazi Holocaust was morally justified and I can't understand what their reasons are. And they've tried to tell me, but it makes no sense. Is it something like no, no. This is a problem, I admit, with my example, which is it's so extreme that, like, well, would that argument even be? Yeah. But could we, could I punt on that? Could I say, okay, I can't even think of what that argument would be. Yeah. But supposing there were such an argument, argument X, yeah. that amazingly, by good, I don't mean sound. It's not a sound argument. Yeah. Because obviously that position is wrong, but it's an interesting argument or something. In that case, would, would you be gratified that your students came up with that or would you be sort of disgusted like wow this is what you do with your reasoning abilities <laughs> okay so so i no, this is a really interesting question so i i think that you know i'm imagining a really weird situation where this has happened but i i think i'm devoted enough to this idea that i would actually think that it was pretty good i would think wow you first of all i'm impressed that you came up with any argument that was plausible for the nazi holocaust and then i think if you know let, let's imagine that's the semester ends. And, and I was hoping throughout the course of the term that they would maybe change their minds about it. And, and I tried, but I, I didn't, didn't convince them. So now they're going off into the world and maybe I, let's imagine that I had the magical power to press the button and they, they changed their minds and there wouldn't be any reason, any rational basis for that. They just changed their minds and they, and they lose their reasoning ability in, in the process. So I think I would feel more comfortable in the first case, you know, they're going to go into the world. They're at the end of my course, but now they're going to have decades ahead of them of thinking things through. And, and I hope that they would come to some conclusion that the Nazi Holocaust was wrong after all, or if, if, if they could reasonably have doubts about whether the Nazi Holocaust was wrong, then maybe that's something that, that I should reconsider. I can't, it's hard to imagine this happening, but. Yeah. No, so this is really interesting. So I wonder how much of that preference stems from your role as an educator, mm. right? So part of the reason I don't try to browbeat my students into having my views. Although I think just by the questions I asked them, that probably do reveal some of my views, but I really just want them to think. And that's my explicit goal, at least whatever my subconscious is doing. I, but part of the reason is I think I have a role. I am entrusted by the university to do something specific 
Right. And that is to give them an education. Exactly. And that education, it can't be entirely thinking about how, about how to think. There has to be some content to it. But at least in philosophy, the more general ways of, of thinking and approaching, being able to analyze an argument are more important than almost any particular conclusion you would come to. Right. So I just feel like it wouldn't be my place. But maybe if I was a professional activist, maybe I'd feel very differently about that. Maybe I would press the button. That would just give them the right views in that case. Well, would you feel that way? So, so, okay, so now I'm imagining that I have no interest in philosophy, which is already <laughs> pretty different. I've got a, a job doing something completely different. I would be really worried about the long-term effects of pressing that button because now suddenly the way that the world is going to make its decisions is on the basis of somebody pressing a button and not on the basis of thinking it through. What's going to happen in the future with some other, whatever issues come up in 50 years or 250 years, I, I'm starting to get worried about this now. At the, at the beginning of, I forget the name of the author, but it's a book on ancient philosophy called The Dream of Reason. And he says the ancient philosophers, like the very, very first philosophers had faith in reason, which is to say people have been placing their trust in myths and things like that. And these people were willing to make rational hypotheses and then like follow the arguments through to their conclusions, even if those conclusions were really counterintuitive. And this shows a kind of faith in reason. Mm. And I'm really interested in this idea of, of faith in reason. It seems like there's something to it, right? It seems like you're sort of exhibiting faith in reason right now in that you're thinking that if you allow people to be reasonable, it just things are going to work out in the end. Or or they're most yeah. likely to. They're most likely to, I think, yeah. Yeah. Whereas it, it doesn't seem like that's that's guaranteed as far as is anything we know. Right? True, yeah. But I, you know, yeah, I would consider an argument if you had a good argument that, that in fact, things are going to be much better forever if people couldn't reason. I'd be, I'd be intrigued by that. But what I think my inspiration, I'll have to go back to All right. I think that ends all the questions that I had for you. Do you have any, anything you'd like to add? I think I covered uh, that it's on my mind about these things. Uh, I wish you well. But... All right. Thank you very much.